0: I'm standing at the back of a crowded Blue Street pub in Toronto's Annex neighborhood. The voice you're hearing is Jared Cold, executive director of the advocacy group Cycle Toronto. It's a celebration. The date is May 4th, 2016. City Council has just approved a pilot project to install Bike Lanes on Bloor, one of Toronto's main east-west thoroughfares. It's also what would have been legendary urbanist and author Jane Jacobs' 100th birthday. The push for Bike Lanes on Bloor began in the 70s, a few years after Jacobs first arrived in Toronto. It's been a tough fight, and one that took a combination of dedicated advocacy, forward-thinking city councillors, and tireless city staff. A green light for this pilot project makes a fitting birthday present for Jacobs, herself an annex resident, who champions cycling, walkable neighborhoods, and a human friendly city. What do you get for the urbanist who has everything? This is Spacing Radio. Podcasting from the Broom Closet at 401 Richmond, Toronto, Ontario, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, our senior editor John Lawrence sits down with the game-changing former New York City Transportation Commissioner Jeanette Sadiq Khan, and we'll give you a little tease of the latest issue of Spacing Magazine, already in stores wherever fine magazines are sold. But first, in honour of Jane Jacobs' centenary, I take a little field trip to talk to someone who can paint us a picture of who Jacobs was... What she meant in Toronto and globally, and how her memory is being honored today. Stand by. Denise Pinto is the executive director of Jane's Walk, a grassroots organization with global reach celebrating its 10th year. She's also a steering committee member of Walk Toronto and sits on the advisory board for Open Streets TO. Much of her work centers around urbanism, pedestrianization, and building communities on a human scale. And she's with us here today. Denise, welcome. Hi, Glenn. Uh, So tell me a little bit about Jane's Walk, how it began, and and what it's become in, in these 10 years.
1: Jane's Walk is a movement of citizen-led walking tours that was inspired by urbanist Jane Jacobs, who, as you know, would have been 100 this year. Uh, She lived in Manhattan and then in Toronto uh, in the annex community uh, and was a fierce defender of a uh, community-based approach to city building. So we ask that people lead each other on neighborhood walking tours that explore their own perspectives of the places that they live, work, and play, and uh, and in that way they uncover these really interesting stories uh, from um, the perspective of a public park from a f- the, through the eyes of a four-year-old, or um, what it looks like to come to Toronto um, with fresh eyes and uh, experience the city as a newcomer, uh, to Aboriginal perspectives on the city. Uh, so we think it cultivates this pretty important and diverse dialogue about what the city's needs are. Um, and so we are celebrating our 10th anniversary.
0: Congratulations. Thank you. And so, can anyone lead a Jane's walk?
1: Anyone can lead a Jane's walk. Yet we often say that everyone is an expert in the places that they live, work, and play. So, uh, so of course, the thing that you think is ordinary is extraordinary to someone else. Bring them into your story of the city.
0: And can you tell me a little bit about Jane herself, what what she meant to Toronto while she was here, and and what uh, she means to urban thinking globally?
1: Sure. So Jane wrote a seminal work, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, which is kind of the textbook now for city builders. So that is architects and urbanists and landscape architects, which is my background. Um, And... She advocated for a very human-centric view of our streets and our public spaces. Um, and her ideas weren't new, but she compiled them in a way that was so human, that was so through her own eyes, um, and was rejecting uh, the creation of cities that were, um, that were made for the car, that were about speed and progress and urban renewal, um, that didn't look at the small details of life. Uh, She famously talked about the ballet of a a good city sidewalk, which is like all of the school children uh, going off to school in the morning and um, the business people leaving for work and the flower vendor putting his wares out on the sidewalk and and people interacting in this informal and lovely way. Uh, And I think that's the richness that we desire when we talk about something like a livable or vibrant place.
0: And you mentioned your background is in landscape architecture. Uh, How did you get involved in in the world of Jane Jacobs and Jane's Walk?
1: So landscape architecture is concerned with everything between buildings, and many famous landscape architects have done large public works, large public parks, um, and my interest is in public space. So it makes total sense that I fell um, in love with Jane's ideas, Uh, but I also really appreciated her... um, her call to action for people to think for themselves, for them to deeply observe the places around them. And I still think that that piece of her uh, legacy is alive in Toronto with a ton, with a wave of young urbanists taking up the cause uh, to think for themselves, to move issues forward in whatever capacity they have uh, through pilot projects or through getting involved in policy. or uh, through small uh, community collaborations that end up actually moving the needle on, on some of our toughest city issues.
0: And speaking to that call to action, Toronto is a place that frequently wrestles with uh, what kind of city it aspires to be. Uh, for every bike lane added, millions more spending maintaining an aging and underused expressway. Uh, some drivers in the city feel we should be tackling road congestion while Others uh, are clamoring for walkable streets and safer pedestrian environment. So where are we in Toronto today in terms of creating the kind of city that Jane Jacobs described in her work?
1: So it's an intensely complex question because I think it has to do with uh, each neighborhood developing a vision um, that fits for the people that live there and then how we all work as a whole and when we talk about Toronto we have to look at the regional picture, what does that look like in the suburbs where there's less density what does that look like in a place where there's um, much more congestion and things are closer together Uh, and how do we move towards um, an equitable city making sure that we take stock of what everybody thinks Uh, and that's a really hard thing to wrap your head around because um, Because when you invite a flood of opinions and ideas, how do you develop clarity and focus? I think there are some incredible uh, city builders and designers in Toronto who who are able to add that focus and perspective, Um, but that Jane's walk and, uh, and certainly the people that walk in Jane's footsteps do the great work of opening the conversation and making sure that we are at least starting from a place of diversity.
0: Mm-hmm, because a, a neighborhood in Scarborough is an area built around a car is much different from Jane Jacobs' home neighborhood of the Annex, Annex. which is dense and you know very walkable, uh, soon to have bike lanes. We we think uh, um, so. Is there something about Jane's philosophy that that can uh, reach people from you know every corner of this very, as you say, diverse city?
1: Yeah, and I think I think that it's a it's a great question, um, but I think it comes back to. Uh, people looking carefully and understanding where there are uh, where there are opportunities in their own neighborhoods and uh, and what they can do to start um, the transformation even at a small scale. Um, so in in Scarborough, of course, uh, putting in bike lanes in some streets would be uh, jumping the gun before we consider how uh, to make those. Um, uh, those corridors safer for pedestrian activity and active transportation, um, and whether we can do those um, through pilot strategies, and that that's a more formal effort, or whether communities can come together um, in certain areas and uh, and develop proposals that are um, innovative. I'm thinking now of Mabel Park, uh, which is a which is a small tower community in Etobicoke. Um, and, uh, and uses an art space programming to animate uh, a public park and get their residents, mostly newcomers, out um, to engage with each other, um, to, uh, to cook with each other. So they have a ladies' cooking circle um, to perform together with theater and, uh, and musical interventions. Um, and, uh, and that that... Uh, is actually a community safety strategy because when we all know each other and can build a trust-based network like that, uh, we get towards that equitable city um, that Jane uh, evoked in her in her writing. Um, and so it becomes about not always a bricks-and-mortar solution, but sometimes a soft solution, a people-based solution, um, and sometimes definitely a bricks-and-mortar solution like the bike lanes on Bloor, uh, which, uh, which I think we're all fist-pumping in the air about.
0: All right, well, Denise, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me.
1: Thanks so much, Glenn. Appreciate it.
0: Jeanette Sadiq Khan has done what many would consider unthinkable. While Transportation Commissioner under former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, Sadiq Khan took radical steps to reset the way people get around the Big Apple. This meant new bus routes, hundreds of miles of bike lanes, a bike share program, and perhaps most controversially, a dramatic redesign of Broadway as a pedestrian-friendly place on a human scale. The headlines at the time were incredulous. People said it couldn't be done. Until Sadiq Khan did it. With great success. She was in Toronto to promote her recent book, Street Fight, Handbook for an Urban Revolution, and Spacing Senior Editor John Lawrence sat down to discuss her philosophy and how it might be applied to car-centric Toronto.
2: Well, thank you for coming and talking to us. And uh, we I enjoy your book a lot. I haven't quite finished it, but uh, I'm enjoying it a lot, and there are lots of, uh, there, there are lots of of wisdom that I hope that this our city can learn from your experiences. Um, so let me ask you uh, to begin with the following question: um, You had the uh, you had the support of a uh, very um, uh, forceful mayor who believed in what you wanted to do, and um, you know had you know a lot of political support around the city. Notwithstanding the fact that you had lots of opposition at different junctures of the this project. So how important is that kind of political backing for somebody in your position who was, you know you were a public servant, not an elected official, um, in you know in all the projects that you did uh, for the city of New York?
3: Well, political support is is very important. Um, and the political support from uh, Mayor Bloomberg really was about the Plan YC long-range sustainability plan, which was, for the first time, uh, New York had a long-range plan. And we looked at how are we going to accommodate the million more people that were expected to move to New York City by 2030 and still improve the quality of life in neighborhoods and in business districts. And looking at that challenge, we realized that we not only needed to reconfigure how city government worked, but it had profound implications for how we used our streets. And that vision very much drove the strategic plan that we developed for New York City DOT. And that strategic plan was focused on making it easier to bike, making it easier to take the bus, making it easier to walk around, making our streets as safe as they could possibly be. So, you know, when we were doing these programs and after the launch of the strategic plan, you know, it's, you, it's very important to have a vision and set that vision. Uh, very difficult to, to steer the big ship of a city if you don't know where you're going. Um, New York City DOT had actually never had a strategic plan before, which is sort of interesting. Um, and then we moved very quickly on the implementation front. And, you know, not all of these ideas were beloved, you know, for the beginning. Uh, I remember I was on a panel with Mitch Landrew, who was the mayor of New Orleans, and he said to the audience, you know, well, tonight she just, like, had Mike Bloomberg's support, waved a wand, and everything just happened. And, you know, I can see how from afar it might look like that, but nothing was further from the truth. All of these projects were sourced at the local level um, and, and very much guided by our strategic vision. Um, but we really worked hand in glove with communities to be able to de- deliver these projects and programs you know when i a couple of the projects that you know we developed you can imagine when i went to mayor bloomberg and i said so we're going to close times square to cars uh, and it was in the middle of his re-election campaign and you know his first reaction wasn't what a good idea you know his first first reaction was what the f- What are you talking about? You know, this is crazy, right? So it's not like because somebody, you know, you you have to have a political leader with vision to be able to get things done. It certainly helps, but it is really important to also work with communities and work with advocacy groups and work with larger stakeholders to be able to translate that vision. There's so many plans that are out there. Um, you know, that, and, and so many of them collect dust because the implementation of everything is, is, is what it's all about. I remember Gerald Caden, you know, a professor up at Harvard, um, he had this saying that I actually had on my desk for all six and a half years when I was commissioner, and it was to plan is human to implement divine. And, you know, that is actually it. And so that really speaks to the idea that you can literally paint the city you want to see. Um, Once you've got that vision and once you've got the buy-in, which is what we did with the strategic plan of the department, go off and do it. And it doesn't take years and years of planning studies and modeling studies, and, and it doesn't take millions or billions of dollars. You can just do it with paint and planters and tables and chairs and just show what a space can be
2: okay so so uh, so I've got a question which will be more resonant to my readers than maybe to you, but I'm sure that this came up in your uh, in your work. I mean, in our city, we suffer from extreme analysis paralysis uh, so you you've worked at a large municipal government, so you know what I'm talking about uh, uh, so so you have the political uh, support, um, then you have to implement it. So, how did you cut through? That part of it, uh, because I mean, what you accomplished in the city of New York in a relatively brief span of time—I mean, you know—we could have like environmental assessments that go on twice that long on a much smaller scale. So, could you talk about that?
3: Well, we worked. Uh, you know, New Yorkers, probably like people in Toronto, actually had almost given up that change could happen on their streets. You know, I mean, we were on our fourth groundbreaking of the Second Avenue Subway. Really, the fourth one. You know, so people just didn't think that change could happen. And so we really focused on how we could actually show the world of the possible, right, immediately. And, and, and people's expectations begin to change when you can show them in real time what a project or program would look like. So we started with a lot of, you know, pilot programs. And we would... And, and we, we worked in areas where we also knew that there was a lot of support. So, for example, Pearl Street, you've been to Brooklyn, you've probably been down there. One of our first projects, you know, just this underutilized parking lot. And over the course of a week or two, we took the cars out. We actually just painted a curb, and then we painted a green, you know, surface, put in tables and chairs and stones for my old bridge projects, and... You know, voila! We had a place that people actually wanted to be instead of a place that people just parked. That's and, one
2: in Dumbo, right? That's one. Yeah, in actually, Dumbo. my kid got his haircut at a barber off the uh, off that street, and I was sitting in that space. Right. So, thinking, yeah, so, cool. so right. you
3: see, and so, and actually, it's a really important point because when we did that, we saw um, businesses in the area increased their retail sales 173. percent after the change. So, again, these kinds of strategies, you know, better streets are better for business. And you can move quickly. And, and some of the shopholders, you know, the store owners who had been one, some of our biggest opponents turned into some of our biggest allies, you know, because they could see the difference and they felt it in the pocketbook. You know, cars don't shop, people shop. And that became very evident. And so, project after project, uh, data point after data point, you know, we actually showed how this could work to improve the city, not only the quality of life in the city, the environmental um, footprint of the city, but also the bottom line of businesses in the city.
2: Okay, so, so I mean, Yangel has talked about how you can track that over time, right? Like, in, you know, growing traffic, um, you know, increased retail activity, less vacant stores, and all of that stuff. So you talked about how turning, uh, you know, Retailers from opponents into allies. Uh, so I mean, we, we have this story playing o- over and over again, and yet there's still this opposition to, you know, bike lanes and to, you know, to dedicated transit lines. So could you talk a little bit from a tactical point of view of how you, um, like, you know, how do you leverage that um, change in thinking um, for the next project?
3: I think I have to take a step back. Um, One of the things that we did in New York um, at every single community board meeting was we turned the community boards from, you know typically the Department of Transportation would be at a table like this, right? And we would be sitting up here, probably three people, and we would be presenting our project. You know, and, and people in the audience would react yay or nay. A lot of times the opponents had the largest voices and they would, you know, take over a meeting and some of the more reasonable voices didn't have a chance to contribute. They didn't want to get involved. And there were lots of reasons why this model of community engagement didn't work. So we decided to take a step back and say, let's start our meetings with a question. What's the problem that you're trying to solve? And that was a profoundly different form of interaction. And we didn't go in with a specific project or a specific thing that we wanted to do. What's the problem you're trying to solve? Your problem might be speeding, in which case we might need to narrow the traffic lanes, put in a bike lane, put in some refuge islands, lots of things to do. But that is a fundamentally different approach to engagement. And also very different is taking a look at our streets differently, you know, and and instead of, you know, looking at our streets as speedways to get cars as fast as possible from point A to point B, you know, we need to really take a look at what's happening on the street. And the bottom line is, is that um, we had a huge problem with traffic fatalities and injuries. And safety it was a huge concern. In fact, we've got 33,000 people dying every year on the streets of the United States of America. If this was in any other field, this would be a public health crisis. And so, that is a really important, um, fundamental to remember in all of this. And you know, so bringing it back to cyclists, um, I think a lot of people think of cyclists as as a nuisance. But so much of what you see depends on how you get around. And you know, cars and cyclists and pedestrians are in each other's way, right? And so it's this kind of you know, war, you know. And the street has actually been programmed for conflict. So we need to address that and address the balance on our streets. And I think people have a a tough time breaking the kind of bike-brain barrier, understanding that bikes even have a role uh, on the street, that they can be used for anything other than cars. And so uh, I think the underlying problem is not with our cyclists, but it is with our streets. And our streets have been designed like the Wild West for cars, and it doesn't have to be that way. So um, I think that, you know, when I hear people not following the rules of the road or they don't like the cyclists, it really is all about the design of the street and less, you know, the behavior. I think we should be asking why the design of our roads isn't following the people. You know, it's certainly better to build a bike lane than to curse a cyclist.
2: So you have the advantage of having an intact and extensive transit system in New York and beyond. Um, so. You can, I mean, you can work with the street and the, the architecture of the street um, and then say to people, well, you know, you have alternatives. Uh, I mean, is that, like, how important was that in, in, you know, in the work that you did, like, in being able to say, okay, well, you know, so we're going to lose some parking spaces. Take, you know, you can take the subway, you can take the bus.
3: You know, it's all about choices. You know, these strategies are not anti-car. They are pro-choice. You know, the mark of world-class cities today Is the ability to have lots of different ways of getting around on foot, on bike, on bus, by subway. That's the sort of secret sauce that um, world class cities are using today. And you can restripe lanes on your streets to create dedicated bus lanes. You know, I believe that buses are sexy. I'm, you know, probably the ultimate, (laughs) ultimate transportation nerd, but I think buses are sexy. I think you can roll out a red carpet for buses and provide world class, high capacity, fast bus service. You're not gonna wish people onto buses or wish people onto bikes or wish people onto walking trails if they don't feel safe doing it and they don't have a high quality system that gets them where they need to go. So taking a look at all of this real estate that we have and repurposing it and so providing actually dedicated lanes for buses, uh, I think is a really important way to provide the kinds of transit options that will get people out of their car. And, and provide other ways of getting around. Because you have to build in the choice. When you think about it, people and companies in the 21st century can move anywhere. And so you know, creating you know, a, a world-class city, improving the quality of life uh, in your city isn't just a nice thing to do. It is, a, it is an economic development
4: mandate.
2: So what advice would you have? I mean, you're, you're working in a consulting capacity now, and you're presumably working for municipalities around the world, um, so uh, so without asking you to give away too much of the secret sauce, I mean, what advice would you have <laughs> to, to um, you know, to a city like uh, so, you know, our readers are City of Toronto people um, we have uh, an inadequate transit infrastructure, we have this politics around the car, which you know about and mentioned in your book um, we have a lot of money flowing into the city, we have a lot of People flowing into the city, a lot of young people downtown. Um, so what's, so with that kind of uh, environment, what advice would you have to the city of Toronto and to our mayor?
3: Well, so I work at Bloomberg Associates, um, the consulting firm that Mike Bloomberg formed after the end of the administration in 2013. And we provide our services on a pro bono basis to mayors around the world. What we're what we're looking to do is to help mayors and to help cities um, redesign their streets uh, to improve the safety of their streets, the environmental health of their streets, the economic performance of their streets, and you know because it really does all boil down to the street, you know. I mean, it is an asset that's been hidden in plain sight for 50 years. You wouldn't be in business if you didn't change your major capital asset for 50 years. And so this is about reimagining, redesigning, repurposing this incredible asphalt, this incredible real estate that you have. You know, a third of cities is, is their streets. So think about the fact that the Department of Transportation here is the largest real estate developer in Toronto. And so looking at it that way, looking at it opportunistically, and where are the corridors where you can really build in better mobility? Where are the the danger spots in the city that we really need to fix immediately and make it safe for everybody to walk and bike and and bus? And how do we build in um, low-cost, high-impact, sustainable transportation systems? What about a a public bike share system? I know you've looked at that here. I know there's been some experience... Um, So, you know, you've got that going for you, but having a very dense system and an extensive system that really connects also to the transit system in a really fundamental way so that you've got a seamless transportation network. These are the kinds of strategies that we've worked on with mayors all over the world, also working on setting up bus rapid transit systems. Um,
2: Have you heard from our mayor?
3: um, I met with your mayor... December? December? And we uh, talked about a lot of this uh, kind of work. And um, he, like many mayors that I work with, uh, was very interested. I do, um, I show the before and after of a lot of projects. And just to be able to quickly go through to show how quickly you can change your city, you know, how quickly you can change your streets. And it just takes paint, political courage and some vision.
2: But doesn't it also take Broadway?
3: Well, Broadway is, you know, know—it's—it's it's not. Broadway is, is one um, project. We did 60 plazas all over the city. So, you know, every city is unique. Every geography is unique. You know, every project is unique. There's not a single project that we did that we didn't tweak in some way. So you have to be very entrepreneurial about looking at the opportunities that, again, are hidden in plain sight in your city. And it just takes a little imagination to to uh, look at how they can be redesigned. And in Street Fight, um, the book I wrote with um, Seth Solomano, we go through how to read the street and recognize those opportunities. They're, they're literally cities trapped in between the lanes uh, of our streets, and you can, you know, Narrow the lanes, make the traffic work just as well, make the streets safer, and put out a protected bike lane, put out a protected bus lane, put out a plaza, put out pedestrian refuge islands. You know, it can be done. It has to be done.
2: So your you know, last line in your book is that if it can happen in New York, it can happen anywhere, to paraphrase uh, Sinatra. So um, in a city like Toronto, where we have a lot of uh, sort of much lower density, you um, you know, from the work that you've done elsewhere. um, I mean, is it possible to do the things that you're talking about in areas where there's less density and, you know, less of that kind of, you know, people have fewer transportation choices, they have to travel further and so on?
3: Yeah, I think it's very important that you actually build in those choices so that you don't have to drive everywhere. You know, I mean, in the United States, sprawl is a trillion dollar drag on the economy. You know, that's not a good path forward. And so, again, building in um, more cost-effective choices for getting around that, you know, are attractive, like a high-quality bus and a high-quality light rail line, et cetera, very important strategies. Also very important when you take a look at the cost of housing in many successful cities. You know, you have to really look at building out affordable housing and uh, addressing the artificial caps that have been put uh, on growth. Uh, in a lot of areas, particularly on the housing side. So these are all um, strategies that need to be tied together to a larger vision about what your city is and what you want it to be.
0: Sadiq Khan's book is once again called Street Fight, and it's available now at the Spacing Store at 401 Richmond Street West. Also available is the latest issue of Spacing magazine, The Housing Issue. And I spoke to our publisher, Matt Blackett, about what you'll find inside. So Matt, what, what can people find in the latest issue?
4: I'm really excited about our uh, spring issue of the magazine. It's uh, Our cover section is focused on uh, housing and, and the challenges of, of putting a roof over your head in this city. Um, you know, we tried to take an approach that was uh, a bit of a different look on housing. I think in, we probably could do five or six or seven or ten issues just on this topic. But uh, what we tried to do with this issue is try to, tr- try to look at some of the topics that are weren't covered that aren't the most obvious things to cover so you know we're looking at uh the neighborhood watch for instance as an article that you actually wrote and w- where where did it go it, i mean we see lots of signs for it but it really is isn't an active organization anymore and but it was it was something that was quite seminal to community organizing in the in the 70s and 80s um we have a a a piece about co-housing we have a piece about how to how to deal with convicts once they've been discharged from jail and and integrating them back into uh reintegrating them back into uh regular day society um and i i found that to be in a quite an amazing uh quite amazing article so um you know we we try to take a a unique approach with our cover sections and i I think we did a uh quite a decent job with this 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 issue
0: and uh Spacing took a look at uh, park spaces and
4: they they did a little data crunching and and they found something interesting. Yeah, so we we took... Uh, the list of the 1,400 plus names of parks across the city and began to code them, uh, categorize them. Um, And what we found in the end is that there was a a, a plurality of them are named after geography. So that's Riverside Park or Edgewood Park, those types of things. Um, But uh, when you start to get down a little bit further down the list, uh, 21% of the park names are named after men but only six six percent so that's uh that's that's roughly about eighty of our fourteen hundred parks are named after women and I, you know I I personally think that's unacceptable, and uh, I think we just we need to have a, a new approach to how we name our parks. And uh, I, because of this article and it, it, it being out, it, it's 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 a really kind of actually quite a short article. It's, it's a map that's showing just kind of the sparseness of, of parks that are named after women. Um, but because of this this feature, um, some organizations and some people have taken it up or taken upon themselves. To, to start to campaign to, to get more parks named after women. And uh, that's one of the things that really excites me about doing these kind of features and trying to get out out front of an issue like, like this. Have specific names been put forward? Uh, well, I know there's lots of people that are interested in getting a park named after Jane Jacobs. And, uh, I you know, I think that would be great, but it also has to be that right kind of park to... That, that really kind of encapsulates her idea um, the way that say June callwood Park encapsulates her ideas about children and, and play and, and, and those types of things um, but right now what I what I've learned since we put this out uh, since uh, this uh, this map and this feature out is that the parks department has uh, a new policy around naming of parks and one of them is they want to add diversity to them um, and diversity of, of people so that, that I find that really encouraging and and you know a feature like this um, you know maybe just helped bring attention to like a, a, a topic like this an issue that well well kind of small potatoes in the, in the grand scheme of things um does have some lasting effect on on how we perceive our city and you know get, getting some sort of like gender equality in terms of just naming of our parks is 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 one step in that direction and our senior editor, John Lawrence, has been involved in a really interesting project. Yeah, he wrote this uh, fantastic uh, feature um, about this uh, archaeological dig that is happening uh, right beside City Hall, or just right beside it, or to, to the west of it. Um, and it's a, it, it's going to be a, a, a new courthouse for the province, uh, for the provincial courts. But what uh, what they discovered, while digging digging up on that site is they found some fantastic stuff um, that that, that dates back 150 years. Uh, So they they uncovered the black Methodist church that was seminal to uh, the ward. Um, uh, A lot of people, I don't think, recognize or or, or understand the history, but the Underground Railroad that was leading uh, slaves to freedom in the States, um, uh, Toronto played a, a, a very, very integral role in that. It was a landing spot for a lot of people and the Underground Railroad and the ward, this area bound by Yonge Street in the east, University Avenue in the west, Queen Street in the south and Girard Street in the north. This area was a landing spot for immigrants, when they when they when they arrived in Toronto, um, and uh, it, it's gone through. You know, it initially it was for the Irish, then it was for the Italians, then the Jewish, uh, and 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 the Black population was was always landing there for 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 a good long period of time. Um, and so John Lawrence wrote a uh, or was the editor of a book about the ward that was published by Coach House uh, Books uh, last summer or last spring, and uh, he's come out um, with this article. Uh, um, in, in our issue that details this, this very intricate excavation of urban archaeology and this, this dig is actually the largest uh, urban archaeological dig that's going on in Canada right now. So it's, it's something that's I think very exciting and the, the archaeologists that are working on this, this, this dig is shaping their career for the rest of their career. Um, it's that important. It's that it's it's, it's that integral to the to the to the story of, of our city and, and to these people's careers. So um, I, I'm very excited by this uh, very uh, big feature that John ha- has written in the in this issue. And you also have a book coming out soon. Yeah, so this is Spacing's first book. This is this is really exciting for us. Um, it's a pocket-sized book um, that focuses on the 50 objects that define Toronto. That's that's the name of the book. And uh, we, we, we sat down. We've been working on this for about two years now. But we sat down with historians and local know-it-alls and uh, people who are the director of museum services for the city, um, people that understand the kind of the deep-rooted history of... Uh, of, of, of where we are, the geography of where we are, and so we, we've um, we have this book. It'll be, it'll be coming out uh, right at the end of June, and uh, you'll be able to pick it up in the Spacing Store. Uh, I'll have to sh- shamelessly promote that, uh, but it this, this book looks at different things so we you know we're not just looking at it from the founding of toronto in 179 or founding of york the town of york in 1793 we're looking back you know 11,000 years uh to, uh to to see some of those objects that define us so whether it's a a moose antler comb or a, a miniature pipe um that's six or seven hundred years old um or, or looking at these footprints that were embedded in the the clay um 37 feet below Lake Ontario, that were discovered, you know, just over 100 years ago when they're excavating Humber Bay. It's these footprints of of a moccasined uh, family, uh, walking up. You know, you can see there. Were, I guess they were walking in in, in uh, along sand or, or, or something around there, um, and they were uncovered by construction crews over 100 years ago. And you know, just a fantastic, fantastic object that that speaks to the history of our region, and it goes all the way up to the present. So you know, things like the blue box and uh, Joe Carter's batting gloves um, are included. And uh, what's also exciting about it is that we have a complimentary uh, web and TV series about the 50 objects that uh, you can uh, watch on. Uh, Five TV One. Uh, So if you're a Bell um, TV uh, cable subscriber, you can you can watch it on demand, or you can go to uh, uh, Bell.ca/slash. TV One, um, and you can watch from there. We have uh, on, on the web. You can watch two of our episodes that are that are already up, um, and and probably by uh, probably by the middle of the summer we should have all five episodes with ten objects in each episode uh, up uh, uh, up on for cable subscribers and for for people who can watch it on the web. So it's it's really exciting to be able to put together a package like that, um, a book, and then also have like a complimentary uh, uh, television show that that goes with it. And that that obviously too is our. Our first television show, our first television series that we worked on. Um, And it's a a very uh, exciting uh, uh, time for us right now. And you can pick up our latest issue as well as the 50
0: Objects book at the Spacing Store at 401 Richmond Street West. In the meantime, if you know a woman who has helped shape this city who deserves to be honored with a park space, you can write the city. Tweet your local counselor. It could be, say... The world-famous urban thinker whose books and ideas have shaped this city and inspired city builders all over the world? Someone like that. I don't know, I'm I'm just brainstorming here. What do you get for the urbanist who has everything? And that's Spacing Radio. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate us five stars on iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe and for sure tell all your friends, enemies and passing acquaintances. We'll come back with a fresh episode next month. I produce this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who wrote the very tasty theme song. And you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track 82. Technical support was provided by Pixel Pie Productions at www.pixelpi.ca. If you have any questions, comments, ideas, please email them to me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our blog at spacing.ca and pick up the latest issue and other city apparel at spacingstore.ca. Until next time, may no one park in your bike lane. Cheers.